good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, on the principle that one should start neither early nor late, uh, let's, let's come together. Um, this is an extraordinarily um, interesting evening ahead of us. Uh, it couldn't be more topical. It couldn't be more contested. Uh, it couldn't be more something which the St. Paul's Institute, of which I'm one of the interim directing team, uh, is really glad to sponsor. Um, St. Paul's Institute is the arm's length agency of St. Paul's Cathedral attempting to raise with the city in particular uh, issues of financial probity and that may be a subject which you've heard a little bit about um, in the last even couple of days. Um, and that context, that context of a, a subject which is increasingly in need of testing and examination has its spin-off in the contest about welfare and who is responsible for it. Um, there is a real possibility that we could develop into a society in which uh, the people who benefit most uh, regard other people as the people who are on benefit. And that would be to be really to fail to understand the way in which we're all bound together, both in what we do for those who are vulnerable, but also in the context which we create by the various ways in which we manipulate money, organize investment, and so forth. Um, welfare is not of interest only to people who receive it, it's not of interest only to people who donate it. It has to do with the whole context within which we operate. And that's why St. Paul's Institute um, can't avoid getting into this topic. And we've got a really interesting lineup of speakers this evening with different perspectives uh, to lead us into this piece of reflection. Um, I have two tasks, really, having said that, um, and the first is a thank you task. Um, this, this event is a, a joint venture between the Institute and the Jack and Ada Beattie Foundation, and we are really grateful for that partnership. It's part of our model of working, um, but of course it depends on other people being prepared to work with us, and we're really grateful to the Foundation for their willingness to do that, and um, uh, for Alexandra Taliodorus, who's um, given the administrative output from that foundation to this, to this event. And although it's not on my piece of paper, for obvious reasons, I want to pay tribute to the man behind the camera over there, um, who's Rob Gordon, who manages for us the St. Paul's Institute and who is also significantly responsible for enabling this event to happen. So that's my first task. And my second task is to um, hand over, with just a few words of introduction, uh, to this evening's chair, Owen Jones. Um, it, it says uh, here on this piece of paper that um, his book, Chavs, the demonization of the working class um, was uh, received with acclaim 
I can only speak for myself. I felt it was one of the most uncomfortable reads um, that I'd ever had. And it was like, um, I, just, I just said to Owen, it was like um, walking along a street and suddenly finding yourself confronted with a full-length mirror um, that you hadn't expected. And it provides an image of all sorts of things, and especially of people who think they're in favour of all sorts of liberal causes. So it's really a really valuable piece of work. And I think we're really privileged to have him here tonight. Um, it's, it does tell me that he, uh, he was um, uh, regarded as one of the hundred most uh, influential members of the left wing. The only thing that worried me about that was that that compliment was paid by the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> um, um, obviously, that's a totally objective assessment, therefore. Um, but, but Owen uh, has really introduced, I think, some important radical questions uh, into all sorts of places where we, I associate myself with that, are not always uh, up for them. So it's really good that he's chairing this evening. Um, I know he's going to do it in such a way that it'll be a really vibrant evening. And Owen, it's over to you. Um, well, thank you for that, and great to see so many faces here. Not a surprise, I'd imagine. I don't think this evening could be any more topical. I'm not sure if you've coordinated with David Cameron. Uh, but obviously, welfare has been one of the dominant themes uh, of the last two years, really, ever since the coalition came to power. But particularly this week, of course, with David Cameron's um, long-anticipated, I suppose, in certain quarters speech, on welfare, in which he criticised the so-called culture of entitlement, talked about going back to first principles and floated some pretty controversial ideas, for example, about limiting housing benefit and stopping those under 25 claiming it. Um, but we've seen in the past few weeks lots of debates about it, controversies over universal credit, which will be soon rolled out, and questions over its cost and its timetable. We've heard con um, um, controversies over so-called workfare, the government's welfare-to-work uh, programmes, including, of course, during the Jubilee. Um, we've seen, um, well, various radical ideas on the right being floated. For example, Steve Hilton, formerly one of David Cameron's right-hand men, on his parting shot, calling for £25 billion of additional cuts uh, to welfare. And at the same time, of course... We're in the middle of a very serious economic crisis, the most protracted, uh, not since the Great Depression, but since the Long Depression. And whilst we've got the official figures of over 2.6 2 million people out of work, uh, if you include people that are economically inactive, people forced to do part-time work because they can't get full-time work, as, well, the aforementioned uh, infamous left-wing propaganda sheet, the Daily Telegraph, pointed out, there were 23 people chasing every vacancy in this country. Uh, according to the TEC, over 6 million people potentially out of work and less than half a million vacancies. So it's quite a broad context and lots for us to get our teeth into this evening. And we've got a fantastic panel to discuss this. And of course, after that, we'll bring it over to you to, to have your thoughts. But I'll start by introducing them. Uh, on the far left, I've got um, uh, John Packer, the Rev Reverend John Packer, who's the Bishop of Ripon and, and Leeds. And had an absolutely key role in the debate over welfare over the last year. He led the opposition to the January 2012 Welfare Reform Bill um, in the House of Lords. So he's going to be discussing the church's role and responsibilities towards the welfare state and the relationship uh, between the church 
and the socio-economic political scene. Um, to my left, I've got Stephen Lloyd. He's a senior partner at Bates, Wells and Braithwaite, and he acts for a large number of leading charitable and not-for-profit organisations on a wide range of matters, and that includes financing, constitutional contract, intellectual property and charity law. He's chairman of the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action, uh, Charity and Social Enterprise Insurance Management, um, Trustees Unlimited. He's also... We'll stop with that. Yeah, he does quite a lot of interesting things. But he will, uh, he will, from the position of a private city firm involved in the third... Uh, sector lead discussion on the value and contribution of both the philanthropic and private sector. How is value to be measured and to what extent are the supporters of well-being being encouraged by the state? And finally, Hazel Blaze, who has served Salford as the Labour MP there since 1997. Uh, she's been chair of the Labour Party, Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government. And since then, she's established and led Labour Social Action Forum, uh, which is helping to shape Labour's response to the so-called big society. So, Hazel, I think you're going to be talking about if and how the welfare state should exist and thus the state's involvement and obligation to the safeguard of common well-being. So the speakers will speak for 10 minutes each, uh, and we're going to start uh, with the Bishop. Um, over to you. Thank you very much, and thank you for that introduction. So, the Church's role and responsibility towards the welfare state and the relationship between the church and the socio-economic political scene, all in 10 minutes. Thank you for that invitation. There is a Christian principle which threads itself through the New Testament with a care and concern for those who are most deprived. And therefore, I take it, the church has a responsibility in that area. Uh, most bishops this coming weekend will be involved in ordinations. One of the oddest things about ordination services, which often takes ordinance by surprise, is that they have to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen. And that demonstrates the ministry which the Church has to the culture and society in which we're set. Welfare is crucial to a humane society, and that will include care for the disabled, those who can't find jobs, children. There needs to be a system to provide that care. The welfare state is one of the primary ways in which we do it. And the Christian Church has a task to ensure, insofar as it can, that that care is provided. They're not the only people who will do that. There are all sorts of people who, from a humanistic concern for all individuals, will look to welfare as crucial to a humane society. For Christians, that will involve the affirmation that all human beings are made in the image of God and that Jesus took human flesh. The church, I believe, needs to express that concern in three particular ways. First of all, through individual philanthropy. Second, through its involvement in providing care. And third, through political action. Stephen's going to talk about philanthropy. All I want to say at this point is that philanthropy is a very grand word. If you talk about generosity and giving, then that applies to all of us. 
Second, the church as a contributor in itself and in its own action to the common good, modelling the good news of Jesus Christ. If the churches did not exist in this country, there would be an immense hole in the care provision which, is, which there is. So, I come from Leeds, I can speak of the work of St George's Crypt, for example, providing help for the homeless, including restoration, including training. If you come to Leeds, get, make sure that you eat at one of the cafes run by Nurture, because they're brilliant, and they are served by people who have been, until in some cases very recently, homeless. Or, again from Leeds, Manuel Bravo, organisation based within the church, providing in that case legal help for asylum seekers who have been gradually deprived of legal aid by successive governments. And then there's broader concerns where the church has been involved in developing something which has then become part of our culture. If you go back historically, you can do all sorts of things on that, like education. But more recently, the credit union movement, for example, dealing with debt, which no one would now want to associate very specifically with Christianity, but much of which started in small church-based groups. Or the hospice movement, which has transformed our understanding of dying and came from a Christian concern. Though many others share that concern, and I stress that again. Today we might be looking, tragically in many ways, at the provision of food banks and the way in which the churches are so involved there. And then on to political involvement. And because the welfare state is a part of the whole provision which our society makes, because the church is and must be integrally involved with our society, therefore it needs to be involved in political action. A couple of years ago, the uh, book by Pickett and Wilkinson, The Spirit Level, Why uh, More Equal Societies Almost Always Do Better, was a book which was on the lips of uh, many politicians. Uh, it seems to have disappeared, rather, as we have come to experience uh, fear, worry, concern about the economic state of the nation and of individuals within it. But it seems to me that that book and that thesis develop much that, again, is there within the Christian tradition, in the Magnificat, bringing down the mighty from their thrones and exalting the humble and meek and so on. And within that political action, some of it will be within Parliament. Concern for the disabled. Mental health charities drawing attention at the moment to the way in which political rhetoric is encouraging a regarding of those with mental health issues as scroungers. Particular concern we were talking just now about autism 
and about the way in which some of those less obvious mental health conditions can very quickly be seen as laziness or as rackets. Those on low wages and the need for the living wage campaign for a wage which is higher and which is more adequate than the national minimum wage which we are seeing reduced in real terms at the moment. Those with high rents, especially in London, and interesting and to me horrifying that there was so little emphasis in the whole welfare reform debate on the issue of high rents. There was no attempt in any of that to deal with how the market sets rents. And then children. And a lack of concern, I would argue, within our present political establishment for the welfare of children. I've been helped greatly in my concerns by the Children's Society. I'm told there's some Children's Society stuff out there if you want to take it on your way out. Who have concentrated our thoughts on the needs of children within our society. Um, it's not true that I led the uh, opposition to, welfare, to the Welfare Reform Bill uh, in the Lords. A whole gang of us were involved in that. But I was one of those who was involved. One of the others was Lord Best. And I take these simply as illustrations. He tackled the bedroom tax. The definition of a spare bedroom, which you might think was a bedroom in which no one was sleeping. Not at all. If you had children of uh, different sexes under 10 sleeping in different bedrooms, that meant means that one of those bedrooms is spare. If you've got a disabled child who needs night help and is therefore separated from her sibling, then her bedroom is spare. If you've got a child who returns at weekends after a family split, then his bedroom is spare. And child benefit. What do we do about that? Well, we squeeze it. The freezing to 2014 of child benefit, the restriction on it for the more wealthy, but the latest budget helps the higher taxpayers, and abolishing child benefit when you're cupping benefits. Ways of finding money by damaging the lives of children. One final point. I, one of the things which I faced as criticism in my involvement was not so much it's wrong, but is it worth it? The answer to that is yes. Although the um, uh, Lord's Amendments were overturned uh, by the government in the Commons, the pressure produced concessions. In the particular case of child benefit, the nine-month gap before the caps imposed after redundancy and the 80 million emergency fund for local authorities. So, a New Testament imperative for Christians to be involved, personally as individuals, communally as churches, politically as part of our society. That seems to me to be the heart of where we need to be in responding to the needs
of the welfare state. Um, Bishop Packer, that was a, a fascinating overview. I just a quick question. Do you think it's a damning indictment of our democracy that the concerns that you and your colleagues raised weren't being raised by elected politicians, that it was left to people, clergy people like yourself in the House of Lords to raise them? Well, I think uh, many members of the Labour Party might feel that they were raising them as well. Um, <laughs> um, Maybe not the Brexit. Uh, Did you think that it was left to people such as yourself because there was a failure of other elected politicians to do so? I, 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 th I think that there is a real fear th um, that actually the uh, government line is that which is shared by a majority of our fellow citizens. And I think there's a real fear on the part of government that they simply cannot give way on things like the child benefit. In many of the discussions, uh, government ministers were prepared to say, yeah, we can see what you're talking about. And it's interesting that the concessions they made cost almost exactly the same amount as if they'd simply accepted the amendment. But they couldn't politically accept the amendment. Great stuff. Um, Fantastic. Well, next uh, speaker, Stephen Lloyd, uh, who's going to be talking, as I say, in terms of the, the value and contribution of both the philanthropic and private sector to the welfare state. Fine. Uh, Owen, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, what do we mean by welfare? Is it a technical term to describe the support that governments and other agencies should give to individuals? Or is it a wider term, encompassing what individuals can do for themselves? Is welfare done to us, or can we help our own welfare? The Oxford Dictionary of English defines welfare as the health, happiness and fortunes of a person or a group. On the other hand, there's another definition. Financial support given to those who are unemployed or otherwise in need. So as an employer looking at welfare, which strand are you looking at? The Five Ways to Wellbeing report from the New Economics Foundation has a useful mnemonic, CLANG, C for connect, L for listen, A for being active, N for noticing, and G for giving. Apparently, if you live by these principles, you'll have a happier life. Inevitably, there are shades of all the great philosophies and religions in this. So quite a lot of this can be in our own hands. But as John Donne said, who worked in this building 350 years ago, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. In a competition between the private sector and philanthropy in terms of sheer numbers, the private sector wins. The UK economy is worth roughly 1.3 trillion, government spends approximately 23.4%, the voluntary sector, including universities, is no more than 5%, and private business in all its manifestations makes up most of the rest. So philanthropy is a very small player in relation to business. So I will concentrate on what business can do. My propositions are quite simple. Number one, employers, wherever possible, should operate like doctors to the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. Number two, better still, where possible, employers should seek to make sure their employees flourish. The evidence is that if, employees do not make their, if employers do not make their employees feel this way, then their health and welfare declines. The classic analysis is the Whitehall study, a long-time study of male civil servants set up in 1967 to investigate the causes of heart disease and other chronic illnesses. 
Researchers expected to find the highest risk of heart disease among men in the higher status jobs. Instead, they found a strong inverse association between the position in the civil service hierarchy and death rates. Men in the lowest grades had a death rate three times higher than those of men in the highest grades. And this is illustrated, I hope, by this cartoon. Yes. What do you mean, it says, I have an ulcer? I give ulcers. I don't get them. Uh, classic example of the boss. Um, further studies showed that low job status is related to cancers, chronic lung disease, depression, suicide, sickness absence from work, back pain and self-reported health. Ill health. Low, low social status has an impact on health. Therefore, the best thing employers can do is to try to make sure that employees sense that they have some sense of power or control over their lives. To paraphrase Thomas Hobbes, life is short where life is brutal. But some of this is very simple. Tim Schmidt, who runs the Eden Project, makes sure he says good morning in a friendly way to 20 of his employees every day. Spread the love. Avoid emailing when talking is possible. But another cause for employee unhappiness is a sense of unfairness. And the bishops already referred to the spirit level. But this is profound. In the last year, salaries of top executives in the city went up by 12%, but by the workforce, generally 1%. In 2005, 21% of US national income accrued to 1% of earners. In 1970, it was 12%. Sorry, it's the other way around. In 1968, the CEO of General Motors took home in pay and benefits 66 times the amount of a typical GM worker. And two years ago, the CEO of Walmart earned 900 times the wages of his average employee. In my lifetime, since 1976, the things have changed dramatically. Britain in 1976 was more equal than it has ever been. Tax rates, mind you, were 83% on earned income, and in addition there was a 15% unearned income surcharge. But today, the UK is more unequal than at any time since 1918. In 2010, the average FTSE 100 chief executive was paid 4.9 million, a figure that had risen by more than 50% in the previous year. That's 200 times the average wage, let alone the bottom wage. Whatever happened to J.P. Morgan's view, and he was one of the um, great bankers in the 1890s in America, whose view was that the top paid person should not be paid more than 20 times the bottom person. That was J.P. Morgan. Now, Francois Hollande, who is regarded as a terrible left-wing threat, is trying to revive that idea. But it was good enough for J.P. Morgan, perhaps we should think about that again. Recent articles in The Guardian on Breadline Britain show the degree to which many people who are working, the bishop's point again, are still very poor. The minimum wage has in many cases created a drive to the bottom in bringing down wage standards. So rule number two for employers, and in particular corporates, wanting to drive welfare is pay your staff properly. Pensions. One of the most shocking sagas of the last 30 years has been the destruction and demise of defined benefit pension schemes. Clearly, demographic changes have made the provision of the such pension schemes expensive. But the argument that many well-funded companies cannot afford reasonable pension schemes, yet at the same time they have grossly inflated the salaries paid to their top workers, is inconsistent, to say the very least. Employers should be working with government to try and set up a sensible, cheap-to-operate scheme whereby a combination of appropriate employer contributions matched by employee contributions goes into a mass system 
That would be a huge contribution to long-term welfare. This would be NEST, the new government scheme for lower paid workers, for all. Staff who worry about their future, let alone who then have a miserable retirement, are not going to make for a happy workforce or a happy country. Finally, pay your taxes. The last 30 years have seen the triumph of new right thinking based on Victorian ideals that the state should be rolled back, that free markets produce rational and beneficial results, and that therefore taxation should be low and in many cases avoided. This is a deeply damaging approach. The fallacy of relying on free markets in finance and in pensions has been exposed over the last 15 years. Well-provided public services are essential to any flourishing business. It's no good having the most effective computer systems if there's no electricity. It's no good producing fancy goods if the road system or the railways don't work. It's no good having state-of-the-art premises if you cannot hire decent staff that have been properly educated or are healthy, having had the benefit of a decent health system. All of these things have to be paid for by taxes. You may not need, they may not need to be delivered by government. There's a perfectly proper argument to say they should not. But they need to be paid for through taxation, which is the most efficient way of raising the necessary funds. But many companies avoid paying tax. Companies only pay tax on profits, so it's possible to structure your company. So on paper, you're making almost nothing. According to the National Audit Office, one-third one -third of Britain's top businesses paid no tax at all in 2007. And that was at the end of a seven-year boom. Companies do this by using offshore tax havens, regrettably, the majority of which fly the Union Jack. There are 90,000 inhabitants of the Channel Islands, but 800,000 registered firms there. The UK's biggest tax avoider is Google, and I'm not particularly singling out Google, but it's just an illustration. The UK represents 28% of Google's earnings and is Google's second biggest market after the US. However, it paid £600,000 corporation tax on £1.25 billion of UK source income at a tax rate of 3.2%. It pays its tax through a convoluted chain of foreign dependencies known in the trade as the double Irish, where profits are siphoned off between Ireland and Holland to get a low rate. The reality, of course, is the more tax that companies like Google avoid, the more the tax burden falls on the rest of the public, or in this case, the less money there is available to help support individual welfare. Conclusions. Employers can do a huge amount to create welfare. It begins at home, but not with flashy corporate social responsibility programmes, but the essentials. Having humane management systems, trusting people, encouraging people, paying them fairly, reducing inequalities and unfairness, providing appropriate pensions, paying taxes to support the Commonwealth. What philanthropy can do in comparison shades it into its insignificance. Philanthropy in this context can only offer plasters to help staunch the wounds caused by the unfairness of the way in which many businesses are now run in the interests of the few to the detriment of the many. So what can be done about that? We have to recognise that many of the major problems are caused by the sheer growth of power in international companies. Of the world's 100 largest economic entities, now the majority are companies. Not countries, companies. General Motors is the biggest, with an economy bigger than Denmark. And number 25, 26 and 27, 28 come in Walmart, Exxon, Mobil, Ford Motor and Daimler Chrysler. They're all bigger than Poland, the population of 35 million. 
IBM's bigger than Singapore, BP's bigger than the Philippines, Siemens bigger than Malaysia, Sony is bigger than Pakistan that has a population north of 75 million. A vast two-thirds of international trade is now conducted through companies, transnational corporations, most of it siphoned off through offshore tax havens. We have to recognise that the corporation is a man-made construct. It's an artificial legal being. The Economist has started writing articles about how we can ensure that robots behave morally. We've yet to work out how to make companies behave morally. <laughs> Recent developments, sorry, I'll skip that a bit. A company law needs a radical overhaul. Shareholder value should not be the driving force. Company directors should be under an obligation to balance the interests of the environment, their employees, society, and finance. Unfortunately, the capitalist system makes finance the sole and only star by which a company should be steered, unless the company's owners decide themselves to operate in a different way. That's, of course, possible, but unfortunately rather rare. There are great and notable exceptions. Three weeks ago, I was at Woodbrook, which is in Birmingham. It was given away by George Cadbury to the Quakers as a study centre. I ran around Bourneville one morning, designed by Cadbury to help his workers, humane housing. I saw the enormous sports centre he established for the benefit of his staff. His Quaker principles underpinned his belief in welfare for his staff but he was a rare soul. As a lawyer, if you ask me how can the private sector deliver welfare, my answer is that individual organisations can do a huge amount. But to change behaviour, like the smoking ban, will probably need something more drastic, namely a different set of duties for company law directors and other business owners. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry, can I say, I forgot my cartoons. Can I just show you two more, three more cartoons? <laughs> this one says, it goes in cycles, Junior. Sometimes the, get, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Sometimes the rich get richer and the poor stay the same. Um, this one speaks for itself. Uh, that's our chief executive of a FTSE 100 company, and there's his staff. And this is the final one, which is all about tax. I just got a 200,000 tax cut. I love this country, but why is it such a dump? And people, and, and people not paying their taxes is the answer. Yes, sorry. Stephen, well, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, one of the things that really interested the point you made about wages. Yep. Um, there's often a presumption, very widespread sense, that welfare is something which only employed people get. But of course, if we think of tax credits, yep. we think housing benefit, 93% of new yep. housing benefit claimants last year were in a household in which at least somebody worked. Do you think actually talking about a living wage could be a way, actually, of arguing for bringing down welfare spending without kicking people at the bottom. For example, bringing down the amount spent on tax, uh, tax credits and, and on housing benefits. Do you think that's something we could tie in, if you like, to the debate? No, I think it's, I think it's profound. I, th I think it's an absolutely fair point. So there's an awful lot of people who are working and dependent on, on state benefits in order to make ends meet. There's no doubt about that. And as the benefit cuts bite, the fact that they're living on very low wages will make their lives really hard. So, I mean, you know, the, the London Living Wage Campaign is a small example of what the very minimum is. And it's not, you know, whatever it is now, £8 an hour in London, London minimum wage, not a huge amount of money uh, to live on. It's tiny. Um, but then the, the figures are always shocking because average industrial wages are 25000 but the mean is about £18,000. Um, and so... 
And, and in that context, you know, people being paid millions is amazing. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks so much for that. And finally, um, Hazel Blaze, and she'll be talking, it's quite wide-ranging, I think, about the, the role of the state and its obligation Thank to the safeguard of Commonwealth being. Thanks very much. I haven't got any cartoons, so uh, you, just have, you just have to put up with me uh, tonight. I'm delighted to be here, and particularly because this event's been co-organised um, for Jack and Ada uh, Beatty's foundation, and I know Trevor uh, very well, and uh, he's absolutely the kind of person that would want this discussion to, to take place. Um, I was looking at the title uh, of the event tonight, Welfare, Whose Responsibility Is It? And I think if you have that kind of title, it leads you to only one conclusion, and that is that it's the responsibility of everyone uh, whether you're in commerce, business, whether you're in politics, whether you're a company or a citizen, actually it is a responsibility uh, for all of us. If we live in a civilised country, we want everybody to be able to make the most of the skills and talents that they've got, but we also want to be able to live in a country where when we fall into difficulty, we know that there is a network of support there uh, that can see us through some pretty difficult times. So I think it is, uh, and uh, as Stephen was saying, it is the state and the church, uh, but it is also those very wealthy individuals which he's talked about uh, and the input into the charitable organisations and philanthropy as well. Now, welfare. Uh, and, and I really am beginning to hate that word. I don't know about you, um, but I would much prefer it um, rather than talking about welfare, which has now got connotations around handouts, scroungers, the undeserving poor. As soon as you say welfare, it brings all of that to mind. Uh, I would rather that we talked about the ideas of social security, about insurance against hard times, and solidarity between rich and poor. Um, but I'm afraid that the truth of it is that as much as I would want us to be talking about those principles, uh, the rest of the country is not in that <coughs> territory. And I think we've got a huge task before us, all of us, to try and shift the debate so that we are not simply talking about handouts uh, to undeserving individuals. We're actually talking about a system in this country uh, of social solidarity, of insurance, uh, and particularly of a contribution-based welfare system. Uh, looking after others has got a hugely long history in our country, it's something to be proud of. Uh, the church, certainly in the early days, was the main mover around hospitals, around community care, um, uh, certainly around um, mutuals and, and benefits. Um, and all the talk now about social enterprises and mutuals and co-ops, you know, we had that hundreds of years ago with friendly societies who used to go round and collect the, uh, the shillings from, from people in their communities in order to provide insurance policies uh, for the future. Uh, so some people think the welfare state simply began in 1945. It didn't. For hundreds and hundreds of years, we had a lot of individual and charitable organisations and foundations doing this very job, sometimes doing it well, sometimes doing it badly. Uh, and anybody who got taken into the workhouse uh, in, in the, the last century uh, didn't have a, a particularly good experience. Um, but nevertheless, we seem to think that it, it all started in 1945. It's true to say at that point, um, with, with the, the, the whole atmosphere around the war, uh, the fact of, of the need to renew the whole fabric of society, there was a much bigger push to make sure that people could be uh, supported. Uh, this year was the 70th anniversary of the Beveridge Report, um, one of the most important and significant uh, political reports we've ever had, uh, and which really laid the foundations, not just for uh, social security, for unemployment benefit, for family allowance, 
uh, but also that whole drive towards making making sure we had universal education in this country, uh, making sure that there was housing provision, that most citizens, uh, irrespective of the fact that they were not uh, particularly wealthy, were entitled uh, to a level of support, uh, really not based on their income, but based on the fact that they were citizens. Um, it was encouraging at that time that this whole agenda united politicians, and again, I, I can't say the same today. Uh, we even had Churchill saying in the War Cabinet, uh, he said, I'm certain that unless the government is prepared to be as courageous in planning for peace, and it has been in carrying on the war, there is extreme danger of disaster when the war ends. Uh, and against his original judgment, he then decided to back Beveridge. Uh, he decided to set up a reconstruction committee that had Labour politicians in it, that was a real coming together of the whole nation uh, to say that when the war was over, uh, we needed to make sure that people had housing, they had education, and they had the things uh, to enable them to make a better life. Equally, uh, in the Labour Party at that time, you had Clem Attlee, who learned his socialism in the East End of London, uh, but he was no soft touch. Uh, and Clem Attlee said, uh, a socialist state cannot afford men to remain idle. Uh, he was absolutely uh, convinced that people had a responsibility to make a contribution. Uh, Herbert Morrison at the Labour Conference in the 1940s said, we have no hands and brains to waste and no resources to fritter away on those who don't contribute to our common effort. And he said something which I think, in retrospect, is quite harsh, but nevertheless he said it as a, a, a very revered Labour spokesperson. Let us point the finger of public scorn at such parasites who make themselves comfortable at the expense of the whole community. So even in 1945, with that great spirit of solidarity, there was a real recognition uh, that we all had a responsibility to contribute if we could. And I think one of the biggest failures in recent years has been the erosion of the contributory principle, which was really about a bargain um, between citizens in this country. And that contribu contributory principle was that when you were doing well, you could pay into the system because you knew that when, when you fell on hard times, whether you lost your job, whether you were sick, uh, whether you were elderly, you then could draw on the system to provide you with essential support. And it was a two-way street, it was a contract, it was a compact between people. And I think that over the last 30 or 40 years, that contributory principle has actually been eroded. And that, in my view, has now led to a real crisis of confidence in the welfare state. And that isn't just amongst, if you like, the well-off, privileged um, millionaires in the country. Uh, there is a crisis of confidence amongst working class people uh, in the welfare state. Um, if you look in the, in the early 1950s, um, the welfare state and the cost of social security was about 5% of GDP. This year it's likely to be 14%, and the majority of that extra spending has come from taxation. In the 1950s, most people were working class. They didn't pay tax. They certainly didn't have savings. They weren't hit by the costs of welfare at that time. And yet now, most working class people are paying extra taxes in order to fund the rise in the cost of the welfare state. Um, we've got this year, uh, the projections are an extra 29 billion onto the welfare bill, primarily because of unemployment going up, which to me is the economics of the madhouse. Unemployment goes up, of course, you're going to have to pay extra for your welfare state. Um, we've got now almost one pound in every three spent by the government goes on welfare. I, I don't think that that's a good position for this country to be in. I want us to be spending more on education, on research and development, on science, on innovation, on creating new jobs. At the moment, a third of our uh, government income is spent on welfare. And there are now uh, one and a half million people who have been out of work for at least nine of the past ten years. That is a catalogue of pretty serious failure, and I include our government. Um, for our 13 years uh, in, in much of that. 
Uh, because for, for many years, while the economy was booming, it was perhaps more convenient to leave people um, possibly signing on on incapacity benefit or whatever without really making an attempt to say, how can we get you back into work? How can we help you to make the most of your skills uh, and talents? And I think the legacy that we're, we're left with now is very difficult indeed. Um, Peter Kellner from YouGov has done some recent polling just a couple of months ago. Um, and I, I just think we need to face up to this. Um, because you know our politics can be absolutely that we want to help uh, the poor, we want to do the very best we can. But you look at this polling, and again, I was quite shocked by it. 74%, that's three quarters of the people in this country of every class background, believe that the government pays out too much in benefits, welfare levels overall should be reduced, only 17% disagree. And even on the lowest socio-economic group, that's people on less than £10,000 a year, probably a lot of people on benefits, 50, over half of those people thought that there needs to be a reduction. Uh, Labour voters split about 60-40, saying that, that the government pays out too much. Amongst Liberal Democrats, it's 75% of Liberal Democrats think that the welfare bill is too high, uh, and perhaps not unexpectedly, it's 95% of Tory voters uh, think that the welfare bill uh, is too high as well. Um, and two-thirds two of the public say that scroungers, which has become a term of um, common currency now, are a significant minority, uh, around half, or a majority. So people's view now is that people who are taking unfair advantage of the welfare state are not the odd people, it's not the, the few, but it is actually either a significant minority uh, or many more. Now, some of that's down to propaganda, some of it's down to the press, um, but there is a genuine feeling in the country um, that, that, that has now led to a lack of support for the current way in which the welfare state uh, is configured. Um, it's reassuring to say that benefits for older people remain very popular indeed. Uh, four times as many would support a rise in taxation and a rise in benefits for older people uh, as opposed to cutting back. Uh, and there is a, still a sympathy um, for help for people with disabilities, which I think is very uh, important. But if you look at some of the benefits for older people, the universal benefits for heating allowance, uh, for bus passes, um, for pensioners, many of whom have a significantly high income, um, you know, there's a degree of political nervousness again amongst all parties, to even talk about rebalancing the welfare system uh, away from some of those benefits and towards the people uh, who are struggling slightly more. So um, what can we do in the, in the face of this unprecedented hostility uh, to the welfare state to try and ensure that Britain remains the kind of country where there is shared solidarity, compassion and responsibility? Uh, David Cameron's speech last week, I think, was, um, I would call it aroma politics. It's where he floats something and kind of um, throws a bit of uh, fragrance around the place to give an indication of what he'd like to do. He says, it's not going to be policy just yet, but after the next election, if you vote for me and you give me a, a majority Conservative government, this is the kind of thing you can expect. And what he says about the welfare system at the moment is the signals it sends out are, first of all, that it pays not to work, that you're owed something for nothing, and there's a culture of entitlement. Now, there might be some areas in which it, it is right to, to examine uh, what's going on. The eligibility for social housing, there are many young people under 25 who need to have eligibility for housing. Uh, they might come from a very dysfunctional family, they could have been abused, they could be in terrible circumstances. But I think asking the question about automatic eligibility is a legitimate debate to have. Um, indefinite benefit periods without any attempt uh, to intervene in, in, in people's lives and get them back to work, again, I think is, is, is worth having a debate about. But for me, it completely ignores the big elephant in the room, which is the lack of work. 
You know, it, you, you cannot talk about rebalancing a welfare state unless you've got a, a real plan for growth to create employment. The only reason that Beveridge was able to get his plan through was because the government in the 1945 era was absolutely committed to full employment. Um, in fact, I think it was Bevin said, as soon as unemployment goes o over 8%, the government should recognise that it's got a problem with mass unemployment and it should come forward with strategies to make sure you get the economy moving so people can get back to work. If they're not in work, how can they contribute um, to that compact and that contract between people? Uh, and at the moment, I think Cameron's speech on welfare is actually a distraction from the real problem uh, around the economy, and that's what needs to um, be addressed. Um, I um, believe very strongly uh, that tax credits at the moment um, provide, to some extent, a subsidy for what is very often uh, profitable employment. Um, I, I was working with somebody from Morrison's supermarket on this issue, um, on, on, on trying to get people back into work, uh, and, and he said to me, our company is very profitable. Why are we getting tax credits and topping up people's wages? Uh, wouldn't that money be better placed in trying to get people who are a long way from the labour market, perhaps they've been homeless, perhaps they've got problems with drink and drugs, wouldn't it be better putting that into investing in them so that they can come and get a job with us uh, rather than the way that the welfare state is currently uh, configured. The work programme, uh, again, why are we talking about the youth contract of subsidising employers when we ought to be using our money to invest in the skills and talents uh, of some of those young people? I want to say one final word um, really about the big society because that's what I came to talk to you about tonight. Um, but in a way, there's very little to say because despite three major relaunches of this of this idea that was that was going to be the flagship program um, for the Conservative government, this was going to be the way that we would revolutionise society. We'd all be in it together. We'd empower local people. We'd get them taking more control over their own lives. All principles, which incidentally I absolutely subscribe to. Uh, I'm a localist politician, and I've never believed in great big state solutions. Um, but I honestly now feel um, that even if David Cameron believed this at the start, there has been a strand of fairly right-wing conservative thinking which has seen the big society as a very convenient frame within which to move public services first of all into the social enterprise sector because that's a nice safe sector to be in uh, but then absolutely with the end journey uh, being to be uh, move those public services much more into the private sector uh, and to end up with a smaller state lower taxes a very american model and i think that this is a quite a big political project for the right uh, which has been if you like camouflaged under the big society uh, but i'm afraid it, it's uh, it's died a bit of a death it's a bit like monty python's dead parrot uh, i think it's ceased to be um, and i can't see it coming back uh, really anytime soon. So I, I really do believe that the, the big challenge for us now is to try and make sure that we get jobs back into the economy. Uh, it's no wonder that borrowing is up, that the tax take is down, uh, that banks have dreamed up ever more complex schemes to sell derivatives, to create um, instruments that do not create wealth. Uh, and unless we get uh, a real drive now uh, to create real jobs which add to the wealth of this country, then we will not be able to provide the kind of uh, welfare support uh, that we want to. Um, and I'll just finish with a quote really from Beveridge, um, because he talked about the five giants that he wanted his proposals of social insurance to deal with. Uh, but he said, idleness is the largest and fiercest of the five giants and the most important to attack. If the giant idleness can be destroyed, all the other aims of reconstruction come within reach. If not, they're out of reach in any serious sense, and their formal achievement is futile. So for me, uh, the question uh, is not about welfare. Uh, the question is, as far as it can be, the question should be work.
Hazel, thanks for that, and a, a really interesting broad overview, particularly historical overview, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I thought it was very interesting, you're talking away about the kind of poison debate around welfare, and I think there's been these disturbing attempts to exploit tensions between the working poor and the unemployed, the non-disabled against the disabled. Last year, disability charities uh, talked about soaring levels of abuse towards disabled people. But do you think it would be right to talk partly about the failures of the new Labour period and where we've ended up. So whether it be in terms of people's awareness of, of what the welfare state is actually spent on, because, I mean, people often talk about the huge welfare bill, but 43% of that is spent on the elderly, which most people want to actually increase. Um, but also, secondly, failures, whether it be the failure to build social housing. There are 5 million people now languishing in social housing waiting lists partly because of the failure to build uh, council housing in this country. And as a result, that's led to £20 billion being wasted on housing benefits lining the pockets of wealthy landlords. So do you think, in terms of the new Labour period, there's something to be said about the current mess we're in? Well, I think I, think I acknowledge that in, in what I had to say, and um, particularly um, the idea that in an economic boom, you can almost close your eyes to some of these problems that are going on. Um, and I, I think that that was part of, of what happened. Um, I certainly think we should have built more houses. I don't necessarily accept they had to be council houses, because uh, many of the people in my constituency will say that, that they are genuinely uh, happier in the, the homes that they have now that are under a variety of different tenures. Um, so I don't accept that ideological um, kind of push that the council has to own everybody's house, um, but certainly more affordable housing. Uh, I also think there's a big argument now around regulation of rents. Um, because if you, look, if you look particularly in London, um, then, then the, the rents that people are expected to, to pay are absolutely ludicrous. I do not know how a family can exist on uh, a living wage. They, they can't exist on that. Pardon? That that will work? It works for keeping I just think that the levels of rent are, are, are just so high now uh, that trying to look at some system of regulation would be really important. Um, I remember when I was trying to bring forward a policy to have licensing of um, private rented property in, in, in my city, it took me 12 years to persuade the civil servants because they said, oh no, we can't do that because there's a lack of supply in London. I said, well, in the north, we don't have a lack of supply. What we've got is some really, really bad landlords who are blighting whole areas of my community. Um, so you know, I, I almost feel that there are two parts of the country. There's a big London issue, uh, and then there are other parts of the country which sometimes have got very uh, different problems. So I, I don't shy away from that. I also think, as I said, um, that we should have made more of an effort um, to bring people within the system instead of simply saying you're on benefit um, and, and that's the way it's going to be for the next five, six or seven years. I have seen people in my community, particularly with mental health problems, who have lost confidence, who have sunk into deep depression uh, because they've not been able to go to work. They've lost out on all of that social life, of that interaction with other people which we take for granted uh, and they become ever more isolated and I think that is a, a, a devastating position for people to find themselves in. The trouble now is they're going to get a punitive approach, uh, they're going to have their, their benefits reviewed, probably removed, uh, and far from getting them integrated into a social setting, they're actually going to find themselves probably more depressed and um, with a greater degree of mental health problems than they had before. Great. Well, I think those have been some really fantastic and wide-ranging overviews of the situation, but I think the most important and interesting bit will be the discussion. Now, what I'm going to do is take two as a man and a woman, 
Uh, otherwise, I tend, I tend to find that men tend to dominate the discussion. And if people can try and be brief, that doesn't mean a very, very long statement followed by a question mark. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, we've got a man at the front, and then can I have a woman as well? See, this is why you've got to do it. There's one. Okay, after the first. Um, well, Bishop, firstly, I mean, that first point I thought was interesting because it's often it was raised by the Occupy movement at the time, uh, benefit forward worth 1.2 billion, tax avoidance by the wealthy up to 25 billion. But it seems quite abstract to people in communities to start talking about tax avoiding business people rather than a sense of someone in their own community not playing by the rules. And of course, the second point, the cap on benefits, I mean, you were very active in terms of opposing that, but it was, as she, as she says, very popular. So how, what, what are your thoughts on both of those? I think the one simple message in terms of the situation which we've got now, uh, where the uh, government um, all the time goes back to saying the trouble is that we are in a great economic hole and therefore you cannot criticise any cuts that we make, is to say that those who can afford to, um, to bear the burden of the economic pressure um, should be those who do so, in, in contradistinction, if you like, to the all-in-it-together, which, which tended to be, at least until recently, I've heard it most recently, but, but tended to be the government mantra. So those who can afford it should, um, uh, should, should respond. Um, the, the cap on benefits, um, uh, yeah, um, um, and I think what... Um, um, the, the problem there was really that overall figures were used, some of them invented, the people who actually um, suffer because of a cap are, um, particularly in London, and Hazel was talking about that, those who are paying uh, either directly or, or, or through the, the direct payment, um, paying vast rents, uh, and the others are people with large families, and the government seems to have an assumption that all families consist of, um, uh, 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 of two parents and two children or something. And that um, if you have eight children, that's simply irresponsible. Most families with eight children is because children have come together from a number of different um, families and so on, and people have taken them on. And those are the other people. Um, king carers uh, who have suffered because of, uh, because of, because of that. Uh, and I think, and again, so often with a whole range of this, where people actually see individuals, where it's their neighbours, then they will often sympathise with the situation that they're in. When you're actually dealing with a group or a class and have no relationship with it, it's then that you feel that um, you are being um, uh, deprived and that others are abusing it. Um, Stephen, you talked actually quite an impassioned way about, well, we're in a church, the sins of the people at the top rather than the sins of the people at the bottom, which we often exclusively focus on, well, the media does or politicians. What do you think that point about messaging? How can a, an alternative message that you're putting across in quite a hostile media environment, how would you do that? I think the crucial thing is about fairness. I think, I think the British do have a sense of fairness, and I think what's happened over the last 30 years is that there has been an increasing coarsening 
of our public debate, an increasing adulation of money, whether it's pop stars or football stars earning a huge amount of money, whether it's everybody's getting hooked up on Hello magazine, and therefore getting sucked in by this cult of celebrity and accepting huge disparities of wealth because that's seen as the norm. Um, and I think that's, that's been very dangerous. I'm, Hazel referred earlier to the, what, the experience of the Second World War, and I was brought up in the immediate aftermath of that. And there was a huge sense of social solidarity because British society had been through this terrible traumatic event. And most particularly, working class lads had been in the army with middle class people. They'd all been mixed up. And the national health, one of the key ideas behind the national health was the wait, doctor's waiting room, where the middle and the upper classes would sit down with the working classes in the same room, whereas doctors previously used to have different entrants, apparently, in some cases. So there was a sense of social solidarity, and in the last 30 years, we've started to lose that. And I think that's really dangerous, because then you start turning on different groups if you lose that sense of social solidarity. And what we've come about and, uh, is one of the, I think, one of the most pernicious messages is basically we have to accept these discrepancies of wealth because that's the only way we'll get the rich people to come to London because then we can play with their money and then we can have their money spent here and that's a good thing. When actually what we're creating is a two-tier economy where we've got London as a sort of mega city state and the rest of the country. And you've only looked at, got to look at house prices to see the, the difference there. Um, and I think there is a, a very strong argument to say, actually, we've got to think this through a bit more. Um, there are 71 billionaires in the UK, the and the total tax take from them was £174 million. If those people had earned interest at 2% on a nationwide saving account, they'd have paid a billion pound in tax. Um, so there are a lot of rich people living here paying very little tax. They're also distorting prices. Um, London is now, or West London is known as Moscow on Thames because of the sheer number of Russians who buy houses. Now that has a ripple effect. It puts up housing prices. Why are landlords charging such high rents? Partly because house prices are so high. And one of the strange things about Britain is house prices have not collapsed. You know, in America and Ireland, they've gone down 40% since 2008. They have hardly gone down in London at all, although they have in up north, where unemployment is much higher. So I think the, the really profound issue is actually this unfairness about the, the disparities of wealth. And I think a lot of that, I hate to say, is driven by this cuckoo in the nest, which is the London economy. Now, London's always... Sorry, I'm waxing a bit there, I'll say one more thing. London's always grown faster as an economy than the rest of the country, historically, going back 300 years. It's always had a younger population, sucked in young people. They've been innovative. So it's all, people have always walked faster in London than elsewhere since the 18th century. Um, but I think if you, if you really want to address this, I think we really have to look at the London problem because I think that, at a mega level, drives a lot of these issues. Hazel, you spoke about this crisis of confidence in the welfare state. Um, do you think, I mean, in terms of that messaging point, would you go back to rebranding welfare? Because that's one of the things you suggested. And also that point about solidarity. How do we restore that? Not least, we've got all these divisions being exploited at the moment, I suppose, working poor against the unemployed and so forth. Yeah, I, I think the whole phrase now, welfare, I think it's just got so many connotations about a handout, not a, you know, a hand up. Um, that it's not based on a, an agreement between citizens to care for each other, that it, it's almost the antith 
antithesis now um, of a sense of solidarity. So I, I think until we start talking in different um, kind of terminology, we're going to struggle really with welfare. Um, if I was a communist, I would probably have a very simple message, and I'd probably have from each according to his ability uh, to each according to his needs. But uh, I'm not a communist, so. <laughs> um, but that was a very, very simple message and still has a lot um, to tell us. Um, I, I think that you're going to have to take some action in order to restore people's confidence in the welfare state. Um, because it is easy. The press just give you the, the person who's you know, got the seven-bedroom house in West Hampstead or whatever, and they're on housing benefit, and they've applied for a better house because they don't like the local shops or whatever. And, and, and that, I don't think you're going to be able to do anything about that. But the truth of it is, you have got one and a half million people in this country uh, who have not worked for the last ten years. Now, you know, not every single person there is going to be um, disabled to the extent that they can't do any work. There is then a hard core of a culture that you do not go to work. And that is the biggest thing that winds up other working people that starts to erode confidence in the welfare state because they're getting up at six o'clock in the morning, they're working shifts, they're coming home, they're doing overtime. Um, and I, I, I know it, you know, I have the pyjama mums um, and, you know, I knock on doors in Salford and I, I did just a few weeks ago um, and there was some mums um, chatting with me, I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, um, and I said to them, you know, how, how old are your kids? And they said, oh, my kids are about um, 12, 13. I said, have you thought about going back to work, you know, perhaps part-time? We've just opened a new um, supermarket in the area which was recruiting. And they just laughed at me, quite literally laughed at me, oh, hey, some work, come on, get a grip. Um, absolutely no intention whatsoever uh, of going to work. There was a young woman I spoke to on um, Monday morning, just after Cameron made his speech, you know, and I want to really have a go at Cameron for the things he was saying, uh, but she said to me after a school event, she said, um, uh, can you help me get a better, a better house? She didn't even say good morning or anything. Can you help me get a better house? Um, so I said, well, I'll do what I can, you know, tell me what the problem is. And she said, oh, um, there's plaster falling off the walls and it's a terrible state. So I said, well, certainly I will. I'll do my best with, with your landlord. Um, she was seven and a half months pregnant. Um, she said, I'm having this baby in about six weeks' time. Um, so I said, well, we need to try and get something done as soon as we can. And then she said to me, I have another four at home. Um, now, there may well be a reason. It might be other families that have come in. Uh, but nevertheless, she's in a position now. Um, you know, where she's got four children, she's having another child. I don't know her circumstances, and it would be wrong to say that there weren't some very legitimate reasons behind that, but the young man who was with her, um, he clearly wasn't working either. Um, and, you know, my heart sinks because I think, well, what is the future um, for that family? Unless there is, not a punitive approach, but somebody actually going around saying, right, there's this training scheme, uh, there's this that you can do. Instead of leaving people um, to, to, to just lead out their lives in this increasingly narrow social forum. Who do they ever meet? Who do they have contact with? Who are their role models? Who's telling them that they can do something better? No one. Okay, great. Well, so first, first question is in terms of regional benefits, would you support that as part of a living wage campaign? Yeah. Um, and also students claiming benefits and there in terms of if companies are to pay higher taxes, as you suggest, would that drive businesses away or have a negative impact on the economy. So who wants to start? Well, I'm, happy to answer yep. the, I'm happy to answer the second question. Not so good on the first. Um, I think that, that, that there's really interesting questions here. Um, number one is, does a high-tax economy uh, destroy business? You only have to look at the success of the Nordic countries to realise that there, a rational social democratic approach is actually good for business. Uh, one definition of social democracy is to save capitalism from itself. 
In other words, to ensure that capitalism is managed to, to prevent what Marx foresaw of the development of monopoly capitalism and uh, oligarchies and so forth. So actually a sane relationship between business and government is at the heart of any decent capitalist system. And one of the ways in which you finance that is taxation. Now, our corporate taxation is a nightmare. I have to say Gordon Brown uh, was a disaster because our tax statutes are the longest in the world. They are phenomenally complicated. Tax should be simple and transparent, lower rates possibly, but no reliefs. And you drive a lot of accountants out of work, but that may not be quite a bad, not such a bad thing. And even some lawyers, heaven forbid. Um, so I would, my plea would be, number one would be for a simpler tax structure. Secondly, tax things that can't move, because in the internet age, it's very easy to flip things off overseas. So land taxes should be higher. There should be a land tax anyway. And secondly, I would implement a tax on limited liability status which is a colossal privilege for which you get paid £25 and never pay again. And actually you could have a very simple turnover tax paid by all limited liability companies that could not be avoided. The trouble is with that, you'd have to uh, get some at least EU agreement on it. Um, so that's what I do and I think if you had a... I think most businesses recognise they need universities, they need schools, they need educated people. What they're concerned about is whether or not actually the education system is delivering the right sort of people. I can't answer the first question, I'm um, afraid. Hazel, regional benefits. It was actually mm -hmm. floated originally. Yeah, that was, that was going to come up in um, David Cameron's speech. Well, it was suggested it would, but they dropped it, this idea of varying it in up north, for example. What, what do you think about that? Well, in Salford, that would include, for example. <laughs> um, well, it was in and then it was out and then it was in and then it was out. So it's part of this kind of conditioning the debate around, mm. around this whole area. Uh, we've also had the talk about regional pay, not just regional benefits, but regional pay, uh, particularly for nurses, for school teachers, for all of our public servants. Um, and I just think it's the, the, the thin end of the wedge and the slippery slope, really. Once you start to say that people are doing the same job, um, simply because they live in a particular geographic area uh, are going to get vastly different rates of pay. Uh, I think it's self-defeating. People will move. Um, and then you'll have parts of the country that find it incredibly difficult to recruit, uh, particularly if the quality of life isn't um, uh, what it should be as well. Um, so I think it's a bit self-defeating. I also think it's been very arbitrary. Where do you draw the lines? I mean, we've always had London waiting, and people have recognised that London waiting is you know, a fairly rational thing to do because it is more expensive in terms of transport and housing costs. Uh, but if you get the difference between, I don't know, Somerset and Devon and Cornwall and uh, one part of the West Midlands and another part of the West Midlands, uh, then I just don't think it's a workable policy. Again, it sounds good in principle uh, and that it's got some logic to it. Uh, but that just brings me back to the question the lady asked about the £26,000 um, benefit cap, uh, which I didn't actually answer. One of the reasons that it was difficult to agree that was because of regional variations, particularly on housing benefit. If you had a one-off cap um, for everybody, then it, it clearly wouldn't be meeting people's needs. Uh, but I think the cap actually was very popular with the public. You know, why should anybody on benefit be getting more uh, than the average person going out to work? Now, you can have the extra children and all those arguments, but at the heart of that, that is, you know, if you're, if you're saying that you're always going to be better off in work, then it is a very attractive position to be in. Uh, the practical implications were more difficult. Uh, in terms of uh, businesses... I've never been a Treasury Minister, so uh, I've, I've kind of escaped a little bit of all that arcane business about the tax um, statutes, but I, I know our system is very, very complicated indeed. Um, and in the last year or so, I've been working with quite a lot of corporate businesses. I've been raising money to bring working class people to come and work in Parliament 
who cannot afford to do uh, work for free, like most internships are. And I've raised money to pay, pay them more than a living wage to get help with housing, and they have a fantastic personal development experience because I'm very concerned that most of our members of Parliament now went to the same Oxford College, often went to private school, come from a very privileged background and are not connecting with people in our communities. I say that by way of the fact that I've been exposed more to business probably in the last couple of years uh, than in some of the previous jobs that I've done. And I've found many, many really decent, good businesses who want to do the right thing, want to put something back. And I think if we did have a tax framework that was clearer, simpler, and they saw a connection between the contribution they were making and how they could improve the country, uh, then I think that that would be a real step forward. And Bishop, um, in terms of well, regional benefits, for example, but also taxes yeah. on the on the wealthy. Uh, I, I agree with Hazel about uh, regional regional benefits. There, I mean, the living wage campaign does have different uh, figures for London and for the rest of the rest of the country. Uh, otherwise, I agree with Hazel that it's just not practical, and that that actually it isn't one region over against another. It's different uh, bits within regions, uh, and that it wouldn't work. Um, I wonder if I could just broaden the tax debate a little bit, because I think that since you were quoting the 1976 mm. figures, I, th I think that now anyway, we now actually think that all tax is unfair, that we should not be paying tax, mm. uh, and that all tax is taken from us by, a, um, by, 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 by uh, an, an unfair uh, government. Uh, and, and, we, and we collude with that. How many times have you, I'm sure it doesn't happen to St Paul's, have you heard people say, fill in your gift aid form because the, um, you'd much rather that the money went to support St Paul's than into the Chancellor's pocket? And that's where we subconsciously think that tax actually goes. If you ask the question, do you think the money should go to St Paul's or to hospitals um, and schools, you might actually get a rather different answer. Uh, and, I th and I think we've so we have got to see tax as being, I, I prefer just to fair, as the, as the right word, but we, we can debate that. Tax as, as part of a just society and something that we should be uh, pleased and delighted actually to pay. And I don't think anybody much thinks that. Um, so the first part, the, how bureaucratic, looking for work that was, wasn't it? Getting back into work and how... Working with people who were out of work. And how bureaucratic that process can be. Hey, would you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, when we were doing the Future Jobs Fund, um, James Pinnell and I were, were setting that up. And that was aimed to, aiming to give particularly young people the chance of training on a proper job at the end of it. Um, I was stunned by uh, a, a fact somebody told me that 7 out of 10 people get their next job through somebody they know. Uh, and that doesn't just apply to lawyers and accountants, it applies to plasterers, joiners, you know, you, you, your dad knows somebody with a white van who's got a bit of a contract on, etc, etc. Only one out of ten people get their next job through the job centre. Wow. Um, now, why are we spending billions on a kind of total infrastructure of job centres when we should actually be spending our money on widening people's networks, making sure they've uh, got some of those soft skills in terms of being able to present at an interview, being able to have a conversation with a potential employer. Uh, why have many of my kids in Salford never been in a restaurant, never had those experiences that then make him far more employable? Why are we not thinking differently and saying instead of having all those buildings and you know the, the boards that are up there um, with, with the jobs on, that's not how the world works. The world works by saying, do you know somebody, you know somebody, you know somebody. And in, 
this century, it's still who you know, not what you know. Um, so, you know, um, your, your iPhone, it used to be your Filofax, is worth as much to you as an undergraduate degree. Um, and I just think we are so old-fashioned and so out of date in our job search that we need a massive revolution in what we do. And Grace's point about working-class representation, I mean, the figures are quite startling for actually, because over two-thirds of MPs come from a professional middle-class background, less than one in 20 from any unskilled background whatsoever. I remember actually interviewing you, Hazel, um, just for the last election, um, and I thought it was a really interesting kind of candid point about the way government works because of that, because I said, you know, there's five million, up to five million people on a social housing waiting list. Why hasn't it been addressed? And you said there's just a lack of people in government who are passionate about housing, but if we had people who'd been in that situation, do you think we'd be more likely to actually address that in Parliament? Yeah, I think there'd be a whole range of issues. I mean, my concern was that in 1970, I think, 3% of MPs of all parties came through that route of being a political advisor, special advisor, etc., etc. The last election, it was 25%. 25% of all our MPs have worked for an MP, become an advisor, got a safe seat, parachuted in, uh, fast-tracked through to ministerial office and fast-tracked through to the Cabinet. You know, the proportion will be even greater in the Cabinet um, and unless you've got people from a range of backgrounds, um, you've got no challenge, you've got nobody saying, hang on a minute, you know, that perhaps is not the right policy. You wouldn't run a company like that. Well, you shouldn't. You, should, no. you, you still do, but you shouldn't have a board. And, you know, the Cabinet is the board of Great Britain PLC. And if you've got everybody from the same background, you've got groupthink. And I just think it's bad for uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the definition of good governance is having that range of people in the room who you can just about tolerate being with. Um, in other words, you've got a huge range of views, and, and the skill of a chairman is to bring that together. That probably describes the politicians, actually. They probably can't stand each other. Um, and just in terms of working class, does it matter if we have a representative parliament, as uh, Grace suggested, not least when we're talking about welfare, for example? Do you think if we'd have more voices affected by the government's welfare decisions in parliament, that would have helped? And also that point about the bureau how bureaucratic it is getting back into work often. I, th I think on the, on, on the first question, um, uh, I, I agree with that. I think there ought to be more, more variety. It is not actually easy within our political system to produce it, and that's complex. Um, as far as the, um, um, as far as the, uh, as the uh, bureaucracy is concerned, I, I actually approve of universal credit. Um, and, and one of the aims of universal credit is actually to reduce bureaucracy. If it would work, then I think universal credit is, is a major, is a, would, would be a major success. Whether it will work is quite a different matter. Um, and, and the other thing I just wanted to say was, I, I do just a bit want to challenge um, uh, Hazel's hardcore of those who will not work. I don't for one moment dispute that there are those who, um, uh, who, who, can't, br who can't bring themselves or can't be brought uh, into a way of thinking which is looking for work. But there are many, many people who do want to work uh, and who actually can't find work. Uh, and I don't think I... Maybe it's different depending on the side of the pen I'm I was just going to yeah. say, there's a young man who's written to me this week and he's <laughs> absolutely... Um, Amazing. He's written 300 letters to yep. try and get an interview. He yeah. is desperate to work. I've just set up something called Kids Without Connections in Salford, yeah. where I've got 70 local employers. I've got 150 young people. I'm matching them up. They're going to get two, three, four weeks' work experience. We've got a dozen jobs out of it. And in September, they will come to Parliament and they will have a reception and a celebration and a trip down Parliament. You know, now, 
we could do that in every single area because it's heartbreaking to get Charles who's written to me and he says I've done everything Hazel and you know I cannot even get a foot in the door um, and that's the desperation of it so I don't for a moment say uh, that everybody doesn't want to work but when you see the people who have no culture of it it's our fault we've left them alone too long without saying uh, that there is a way back. It's interesting though, isn't it because Royal Mail over Christmas advertised for seasonal jobs and I think they advertised about 15,000 places and they're absolutely inundated tens of thousands, over 100,000 young people predominantly, but it's interesting because we get a lot of emphasis on the, the hardcore who so supposedly don't want to work in very ever little reflection on the majority who are desperate for work but can't get any. Right, so that's uh, in terms of uh, priorities and what politicians should prioritise. And the second point, relying on the third sector, we've seen obviously take homelessness, gone up by 14%, an average of 15% cuts to services supporting them. But is it, are we returning to a pre-welfare state era of voluntary and private sector organisations providing it through philanthropy rather than the state, what do you think? There is a risk, and if that happens, that's really dangerous. Classic example, pre-1948, London had a surplus of hospitals, Stoke yeah. had no hospital. Why? There was no planning. Depending on individual philanthropy, you got hospitals or you didn't. Um, so I think I, my, my view is that probably what we need to think about, why, why I bang on about taxation is taxation is a really quick, easy way to raise money. I'd much rather pay taxes and go to dinners and eat rubber chicken and make donations to charities. Much more efficient, much cheaper, number one. Number two, I think we need to get away with the obsession which has dominated British politics since 1948. It's either the state or it's business. I think we need to have a much more nuanced understanding of that. Take the German economy. The German economy, banks are owned one-third by the state, one-third by mutuals, one-third by the private sector. Take health in Germany, it's exactly the same. And because you've got different players, you can negotiate frontiers and nobody becomes a monopoly. And much though I love the NHS, I was appalled how lightly the NHS got away with the mid-staff's uh, mismanagement. It was, I, I was amazed, because it's a national treasure, it does not get the same, um, let's say, exposure yeah, I say it, and I'm no fan of him, that Murdoch's got with the press. And actually, killing people in mid-staffs was actually worse than phone hacking. OK, We're running out of time, but Bishop, in terms of the priorities of politicians, but also that point about the third sector. Yes, the priorities question is an interesting one, because uh, governments do have, uh, do have priorities. It's just a question of how they express them. Uh, and, and, and you can, you can challenge them in terms of the amount that we spend on the defence budget, for instance. Uh, but the but but the danger is somehow that that, that that they that they all get separated and so everything is looked at um, individually and and, and, and and by itself. Um, I, I um, uh, you don't have to go to dinners, but I, we we do have to give. I think I, th I don't think I, I I don't think that tax will do as the only way the in which we actually uh, support and encourage. I agree. Um, and uh, but I, I agree with you that that, um, that that tax is crucial. And the point which you actually made earlier on that it is it, it's rather good if the third sector take over. Um, uh, probably more than they have traditionally done in this country, so long as it's pro properly funded, yeah. and so long as the money's there to enable the further sector to do it properly. And just finally, Hazel, to finish it off. I was just going to say that um, it was Anirin Bevan, wasn't it, who said that politics is the language of priorities. Um, but I think we've got to a state now, not just in this country, um, but, but in many, many Western countries, where if something happens, it's the government's fault or the government has to do something. You know, something has to be done. Um, it's maybe the worst phrase for politicians to hear. And with 24-hour news, 
then if something happens and the government does not immediately respond to it, then somehow there's a lack of governance. And I think maybe what I've learned in the you know, 10 years or so that I was government minister uh, is maybe to under-promise, uh, uh, under over-deliver, um, and perhaps not to do as much, to do fewer things, but to do them better. Uh, but I think the pressures on government to do something are enormous. Uh, in terms of the third sector, um, I just think there's a bit of a con going on, I really do, and, and when, I, when I first thought about the big society, I actually thought, great, you know, we, you know I wish it was our government, um, but I did a white paper called Communities in Control, and it was all about empowerment, the third sector, a social enterprise um, strategy, uh, getting different providers into the system for health, for education, and I think it is a big idea, and I am so um, saddened by the fact that we've now got a £5 billion cut in charities. So it's got no credibility whatsoever. You cannot bring in what is a fundamental change in the balance of public-private sector provision in an atmosphere where you are cutting services from under people's feet. And I think it's a really big missed opportunity. When I was a health minister, I talked about co-ops and mutuals and all of that. And all I got from civil servants was, well, we understand the public sector and we understand the private sector, but we haven't got a clue yeah. about this whole mm. range of, of really vibrant and innovative organisations. And I still don't think the British establishment really, really understands that. And it's yeah. about time they did. Yeah. Fantastic. We've just slightly overrun, but that was a brilliant discussion, I thought. Um, and I think this is an issue which is certainly not going to go away uh, in the coming years. I want to just thank the Jack and Ada BT Foundation. I know you've all got a pamphlet there talking a bit more about what the foundation does, but I just want to give a big round of applause to the panel for a fantastic discussion.